Hi everyone, welcome to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding the light after perinatal trauma. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, birth trauma survivor turned podcast host. Today, we're joined by a help and stroke survivor. This mom went in to have a baby, something millions of women do every day, and woke up six months later in a long-term care facility. Tune in to find out what caused her brain injury and how her recovery has been. All righty. Let's go ahead and start with your birth story. What is your birth story? My birth story is that I thought I was headed for an easy scheduled C-section mm-hmm. at 30, 39 weeks. Um, my baby was breached. She couldn't turn. Um, there was a fibroid. There, so there was a bunch of reasons why it had to be a C-section. I didn't think it was a big deal. All my mm-hmm. friends had C-sections. My friends even told me I could type up a birth plan for my scheduled C-section. So I did. I wanted to see my baby immediately. I wanted um, to have her placed on my chest while I was in recovery so that I could have skin to skin contact, said to facilitate breastfeeding. Um, I had switched from a more experienced OB at a bigger, more impersonal hospital to a less experienced OB at a homier hospital, all because I liked the homier vibe and I hoped to breastfeed and they had lactation consultants on staff. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. In order to breastfeed, you have to be conscious. Um, So my birth story is that I was on a blood thinner. I was injecting a blood thinner to treat a minor clotting disorder that I had been told might have caused three prior fetal demises. They were all early at the end of the first trimester, Um, but they were nonetheless devastating for me. Absolutely. Yeah, and I was determined to get to the bottom of them. So I found out about the clotting disorder and I was injecting Lovenox. I was also supposed to take low dose aspirin, but the doctor who instructed me to do that didn't put his instructions in writing. And so I only heard Lovenox and I didn't do the aspirin because mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't hear it. Um so I was injecting Lovenox, uh, and then my OBGYN said, You can't be on Lovenox and undergo a C section. So she told me to stop the Lovenox at 38 weeks. So I did. And the next thing I knew, I was waking up six months later. Oh, my goodness. Six months later in residential rehab, which is a house in Tarzana, California, where my baby could not stay with me and my husband could not stay with me. And I was being told, oh, yeah, 48 hours after stopping Lovenox, you you came down with a very extreme pregnancy complication called HELP syndrome. And you nearly died. And you've been in five different hospitals recovering for six months and we can't bring you home because insurance will not cover the care you need. So you have to stay here. Mm-hmm. I was being van, van pulled during the day to a clinic uh, with, with other brain injury patients um, to do neurocognitive rehab, physical rehab, all that stuff. And I hated every minute of all of it, all of the rehab and, and having to live in a house separated from my family. I mean, it was just awful. Yeah. I cried every night, every night I, they, I would um, come home from the clinic, rest, then get up and make dinner for my husband um, and my, you know, get ready for the baby. And he would bring the baby after work and I'd we'd feed the baby in the high chair and I would feed him. I would get my husband dinner and we would eat together. And then we'd go back to my room and cuddle. And, um, and then it was lights out and they have to leave and he would, mm-hmm. he would leave and I would go to sleep and then I would wake up couple hours later confused as to why I was alone why my baby and husband weren't there because I had severe short-term memory deficits and 
I would be sort of disoriented and devastated. And I would call him, waking him up. And he would say, oh, honey, you know, I can't stay. They won't let us stay. We can't spend the night there. And I'd be crying and saying, Dude, I have to come home then. I can't stay here without you guys. Um, so I begged and begged and begged and begged. This went on for three weeks. And he petitioned insurance, which was a huge formal process. Um, yes. To cover the care we'd need, which was um, a driver to take me to and from the clinic during the day as an outpatient. And um, a nanny to cover, to pay, to take care of our daughter at home. And insurance, which would have paid, I don't know how many thousands of dollars a month to keep me in this place I hated, would not cover the care. So he said, fine, I'm bringing you home anyway, and I'll pay for it myself. I mean, you know, it was a lot of money. So Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask what kind of brain injury you suffered? A stroke. A stroke. And do you know what area of the brain it primarily affected? I should know, but I don't. I bled into the ventricles at the base of my brain. Um, mm -hmm. And but what it most mostly affected, thank God it wasn't. I say thank God it wasn't my personality. <laughs> Although if you didn't like my personality before, maybe you would have wished it, it, it had affected my personality. Um, what it affected was the ability to retrieve short term memory. So um, like when you make new memories, they get transferred like somewhere, place else in your brain, towards the back of mm -hmm. your brain. And then you have to, later on, when you want to retrieve the memories, you have to somehow get them to the front of the brain again. And what was injured was the ability to retrieve the memories or also to store the memories. So I'm told that in the first months of my recovery, when um, someone would enter my hospital room and I'd have a nice time chatting with them after they left, I wouldn't remember they'd been there. Mm -hmm. um, over time that changed and I could remember things like that, but it was still a struggle, you know, to say, okay, who was here? Somebody was in my room. I'd have to work harder to remember the details. And that, so the, for the longest time, that was my struggle was my short-term memory. Um, about seven months into my recovery, when I was finally living at home again and doing neurocognitive rehab in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband was at work all day and he came home at the end of the day and I had been doing the rehab that I absolutely detested with this cognitive therapist who I personally didn't like very much. And um, he said, what'd you do today? And I said, I don't remember. And he said, no, really, what'd you do? I said, no, really, I don't remember. <laughs> and being a persistent jerk, he was like, no, really, what'd you do? Now, my husband is mildly colorblind. So mm -hmm. I was very frustrated that he couldn't understand the struggle I was going through. But he, so I took a green and I took a brown crayon and I drew two colors that he can't see really. He can't distinguish on a piece of paper. And I held it up. I said, which color is this? Which color is that? And he was like, uh, I can't tell. I said, bingo, bingo. Now you understand what I experienced when you asked me what I did today. It's the same thing. I can't tell you what I did today in any kind of detail. I have a vague memory that I did cognitive rehab with Sandy and I hated it. That's it. And he says, well, I need you to, I need you to dig in and try to figure out what you did today. And I said, but if it's hard and if it's something that's unpleasant to remember, even if I could remember it, it's not something I'm going to really work hard at doing for you. I'm sorry. And he said, I'm really sorry. I didn't understand that's what it was like for you. And, but do try. It's important that you try to remember and rebuild your working memory. And I said, okay. <laughs> so now I do remember everything. And it's awesome. My memory is back because I worked my ass off in that, that rehab. 
Yeah, sounds like it. That I hated, you know? Yeah, um, I can relate mildly. I say mildly because my deficits were not as severe as yours, but I can relate to the frustration of, you know, feeling like the therapist gave you something to do and as hard as you try, you can't, you can't remember. And then for me, it would give me a migraine if I tried too hard. Yeah. And it was awful. Yeah. Uh, So can you, well, you probably don't remember a lot, but. I remember fragments. I remember fragments. Of the early days. Do you remember what it was like to wake up after six months? Um, Well, yeah, I do. Because when my stable memories begin, which is six months later, I'm in this house that isn't mine. I'm in bed at night. I'm sound asleep. and I am a light sleeper. Mm-hmm. And the door of my bedroom clangs open. It had like this metal thing, uh, magnet on back. I don't know why. It bangs open. It was like a wide door for wheelchair patients. And I'm startled awake. And I jump out of bed. I'm like, I see this person creeping into my room. And it's a woman, young woman. And I jump out of bed. And I go, who are you? What are you doing in my room? And, I, and she turns and runs out the door down a long, dark hallway. So I chased her. And I chase her into the kitchen, which is dark, and she flips the light on. And I grab her by their hands, and I pull her down, and I say, what were you doing in my room? And she tells me something. But the next morning, I I can't remember what she says. I just know she said something that about needing to check up on me. And because um, my memory doesn't – I remember the gist, but not the details is how mm-hmm. my memory works. So I'm just, like, determined. I'm determined that that will not happen again. I need a good night's sleep. I don't want some stranger staring at me in the middle of the night, um, waking me up potentially. So I I take a big armchair and I move it and block the door. I'm not going to let this happen again. I need to get my rest. And so then they send down an order. You can't do that. We need access in case of emergency. And um, so then my husband, I get, get my husband involved because this is not fair. How am I going to heal if I can't sleep? Good question. Yeah. So he he works it out with them. This happened three nights in a row. She walked in on me that I was aware of. And uh, he he works it out with them that they will now listen in. She will sit in the kitchen and listen in on my room using a baby monitor. So she won't interfere with my sleep anymore. But Mm -hmm. the damage is done. I'm paranoid. At this point, I've become completely paranoid. Um, I believe, excuse me. I believe that there are cameras behind every mirror, that they're watching me, that I have no privacy whatsoever. And um, I tell them, I know you're all watching me. Uh, it's embarrassing in retrospect because I now understand they weren't doing that, but it's just how I, I perceive things. Um, so then in their wisdom, they take me to see a psychiatrist. And they lie to me about what they're doing. They say, um, we're going to be taking you to a doctor for a routine review of your meds. And I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm used to being taken to all sorts of doctors by them and whatever. And mm-hmm. for some some reason, Scott is coming that day too. And uh, the uh, my case manager, she takes me and Scott, we get in her car and we drive to somebody's office. And when, as soon as we get there, I have to use the restroom. So I Oh, oh, and the guy, the doctor is really cranky. He, he tells to her, 
did you bring the paperwork? And she looks befuddled. Paperwork? And he's he's like, you're always supposed to bring paperwork when you bring a patient like this. And he's like yelling at her. And I'm like, this is really weird, but whatever. I said, I have to use the restroom. So now he's really mad. So I use the restroom and I'm kind of starting to get a really uncomfortable feeling. I come back. I sit down in his office and he's like, um, do you hear voices when people aren't around? I go, no, I'm not paranoid. And he goes, let me finish the questions. He's getting really irate with me. Um, and it's just like all these questions to determine whether I'm schizophrenic or paranoid and all this crap. And I'm just like, dude, I'm a smart person. I know you want to find out if I'm crazy. You're basically asking me, am I crazy? I'm going to tell you I'm not crazy. But I believe I'm being watched. I believe I'm I'm not safe in my environment. And I want to go home. I don't want to live there. I don't want to stay in that place. So anyway, eventually, after all this happens, oh, I become convinced because I've been taken to a psychiatrist who's grilled me. And Scott says, honey, it was just a routine review of your meds. And I have a friend who used to be a psychiatrist. So I tell her this story. And she says, something about your story is puzzling. I said, what? It didn't have to be a psychiatrist to review your meds. Any doctor or intern could have done that. They must have had some other motive for taking you to a psychiatrist. Well, now the paranoia comes back. Scott told me it was just a routine review of my meds. If Scott is lying to me and they're lying to me, Scott's colluding with them for some reason to take me to a psychiatrist. So maybe he's trying to have me committed. I mean, he's my he's my rock. And now I don't I don't trust him. And so I call my sister, who's an attorney in, in New York, and I say, what does it take in the state of California to get a woman committed to a mental institution, because this is what I think he's trying to do to me. I mean, this is how bad it's gotten. She says it takes uh, two doctors to sign off on you and say you're, you know, mentally unwell. So I go, great. They've taken me to one. I'm not going to let him take me to another. I'm going to do whatever it takes to just say, no, I'm not seeing any other doctor. I won't get in the car, go to any other doctor. It's horrible. Wow. So my Yeah. So my sister tells because she's blabbermouth, she tells Scott, my my parents, she tells my parents, and they call Scott, and he says, how could you think I was trying to have you committed? So I go through the whole reasons, my reason, you know, all the rationale, and he goes, no, honey, nobody was trying to have you committed. We were worried about your level of paranoia living in the house, and they told me a visit with a therapist might help. I thought it was going to be a talk therapy session to help allay your fears. I didn't realize there's going to be this moron, this strange man yelling at you and grilling you. It was a thoroughly botched attempt to allay your fears. And I apologize. I said, fine, but we need a meeting with the company because I do not want to go through this again. So we sat a sit down meeting with the CNS, Center of Neuroskills, in which I said, you must always be transparent with me. Do not lie to me ever again, because when you lie, I will sense it. And I will assume that because you're lying, you must be up to no good. Just be honest mm -hmm. with me. Yeah. It's understandable. Yeah. It was a nightmare. You said earlier that your husband had petitioned insurance to bring your care home, yes. but they denied that. Yes. So what happened next? He um had to hire a nanny for our daughter, which was a big process that I wanted to be involved in um, interviewing nannies. Mm -hmm. And I was. And then he had to hire a woman to drive me. Uh, from home because his work schedule did not this was pre-pandemic so he was commuting you know he didn't he couldn't be there to drive me to the clinic and then mm -hmm. pick me up and take me home at three o'clock when the therapy sessions ended 
fact. So we interviewed together, we interviewed at the clinic, we interviewed nannies um, and drivers, and we hired a driver and a nanny, two separate people. So that's a lot of money. Yes. And then I came home to live and I was so happy. I was so happy to be home. Uh, and my and my mother and father, who had been, he had been apprising them every step of the way of his concerns. My mother said, she's not paranoid when she's home. So clearly she's not mentally ill. This is a situational thing. You need to bring her mm -hmm. home. But nobody believed that. So, um, but eventually, like I said, he caved into the pressure I was putting him under. So I come home to live. I'm so happy to be home. And his biggest concerns, I think, was that were that I might burn the house down by leaving the stove on and forget, you know, walk out of the room and forget that I left the flame on or that I might do something dangerous um, in my care of Sarah. You know, he didn't, he was nervous that unsupervised, I might somehow harm our baby. But I had, believe it or not, I had taken all the baby care classes ahead of time. I mean, he hadn't because he thought I was going to be doing all the care of our child. And, mm -hmm. and so I feel like I was a really good mom from the get-go. He might argue with that, but I don't think I ever put our daughter at risk in any way. Um, he he kind of hovered and micromanaged my care of our daughter in the beginning until he got confident that I was a good mom. Yeah. yeah. Did your husband do the same thing? My husband did the same. And I even remember we, so our stories are so similar and we had we hired multiple nannies. We actually hired a nanny agency to begin with. Yeah. And I I remember there was one day my then two-year-old, she was on the counter. And I don't know what I was doing, or I can't remember what I was doing, but I remember the nanny was on the couch with the infant. Mm -hmm. And my two-year-old was sitting on the counter. And I literally just walked away. Like I went into the other room to get something. And then the nanny, I, I overheard the nanny say, like, Claire, stay still or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I came back in the room and I was like, obviously, I got her off the counter. But I'm like, why did you not get up and get her off the counter? I understand you have the baby, but put the baby down. You know, like. Uh, I had a really great therapist at the time who encouraged me to make a binder mm -hmm. for because since it was a nanny agency it was you know different nannies all the time oh, so wow. I created this binder that told our entire story oh, nice. and like you know when you are here you are on like I am not in charge you are oh. you know we're we're paying you to be in charge of the children I'm here to help right and you know be with my children but you are in charge and I can't remember if that was before or after we created the binder. I don't remember. But regardless, like, I used to be a nanny. Mm -hmm. So, heck, yeah, I would have gotten up, put the baby down, and gotten the toddler off the counter. Like, Yeah, it's challenging for anybody to help somebody who's recovering from a stroke. It, it really is um, because there, there's extra there's extra skills required and extra. They have to go above and beyond just being a regular nanny. You know what I mean? Um, that's true. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. So, and like that's the that's the piece that insurance is. What's the word? That's the piece that insurance is denying their patrons and getting them the proper care that they need, especially when there's young children in the house. 
Oh yeah, my, I mean my insurance. My I had amazing insurance through my union, the Motion Picture Editors Guild, and it was dual insurance because I insisted my husband negotiate. My husband can't belong to a union because he's management, but I found out if he asks his employers to pay into my union's fund on his behalf, it's an agreement that it's called the non-IATSE affiliates agreement. If they if his employers pay into my union's fund on his behalf, we could get dual union provided health insurance. So that's what we had at the time. Amazing insurance. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful for everything they paid for, but they wouldn't pay for unlicensed care. So they wouldn't pay for a driver or a nanny or anything of that nature. They would pay to keep me in that house that I hated. I was literally losing my mind, going crazy, paranoid in that house. But they would pay for that, but they would not pay for the care we needed so I could come home to live. So whatever, mm-hmm. whatever. So that's their limitation. And it's frustrating. And I I wrote them a letter afterwards saying, I really think you need a, a residential rehab where family members can also stay in the Los Angeles area, because that would have solved our problem. You know, um, just a, a, a unit or a house where it's okay for the baby and the husband to spend the night. Mm, that's maybe yeah. a tall order, but that's what they, I wish they had. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah. So you mentioned in your email, as awful as what happened to you, you realize that you and your daughter are among the lucky ones okay. because you both survived and you've had an amazing recovery. Yes. We've talked a couple of times about your recovery and what it was like in those early days and to sit here talking to you. I don't want to minimize the hard work that you've put in, but it it truly is miraculous. Oh, it is. How, it is. how well your memory is now and how, you know, how well you're doing now. But like I said, I don't want to minimize the hard work and, you know, the challenges that you have to overcome every single day. Um, what has kept you motivated on those harder days, so to the speak? The hope of returning to a life I absolutely loved. Um, the, the, the also, of course, the support of my husband, my, my pain in the ass husband. I mean, I love him and I hate him simultaneously. Mm-hmm. The, the desire to see my daughter grow up. I mean, for God's sakes, I worked so hard to bring this child into the world. And She's a pretty mm. awesome kid. She really is. Uh, so all of that keeps me moving one step at a time. Um, oh. When I was at the clinic, I uh, they were having me do occupational therapy. Their idea of occupational sorting beads in boxes, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, sorting beads in boxes. This is very nineteenth century. We don't really occupations jobs aren't really like that anymore i i want to go back to the editor's guild i want to work on the avid in their training room and i i asked them if i could even though my um membership is on i'm on what is it medical leave honor honorary withdrawal for medical reasons and they said i could so i began getting driven down to the guild and working in their training room i hope to resume that now that they've reopened it but i was told i called like a month ago and they said it's been closed during the pandemic, but we plan to reopen. So I want to start going down there again and working on their mm-hmm. AVID. It would be um, a signal to my husband that I'm in serious about actually going back to the kind of work I did before. Now, he's kind of skeptical. He's very skeptical that I can do it. He, he says, oh, you have to remember hundreds of hours of footage. And I always say, 
No, I never remembered hundreds of hours of footage. Pre-stroke, I always took notes and put locators on my footage. And, you know, I had my strategies for if somebody came in and said, do you have a shot where they do this, I, of finding things. I was really good at organizing my footage and having a system. So I would have to go back to something like that. Mm. I don't know if that's a absurd hope, but it's something I have to strive for. To me, recovery means going back to everything I did before. They tried to get me not, they told me not to even worry, not to even consider driving again. Mm. I said, what do I, because my husband told me my license had been suspended. And so I asked the clinic, Mm -hmm. what do I have to do to get my license back to return to driving? And they said, you don't need to worry about that. I said, well, what happens if I get a job again going as an editor, you know? And they said, the studio will send a driver for you. And I'm like, if you're going to make up a lie, make up a credible lie. Studios don't send drivers for editors. They might send a driver for a producer, maybe, but they don't. It's just stupid. Don't lie to me. So anyway, after they told me not to consider driving again, I, when I graduated to home-based rehab, which was with this cognitive therapist and an occupational therapist, I said to the occupational therapist, what do I have to do to return to driving again? Oh, and I have a friend who has access to the California DMV. So I, I called her and I said, do I, isn't my license really suspended? Mm-hmm. She said, she looked it up. She says, maybe I shouldn't tell you this. No, your license is still good. It was never reported. So I just began driving again. And then, you know, without doing anything special, I just started driving again. And I was a good driver. But then Scott found out and he got really angry. He said, listen, if you get into an accident, they do a little digging. They re- realize you had a stroke and you weren't cleared to drive again. We could have our house taken away. So I was like, okay, fine. So I will get cleared. So I asked my occupational therapist, who mm-hmm. I liked a lot. He was a really nice guy. What do I have to do to be cleared to drive? He says, well, you need to take a test on a computer in a, a te- a office of a person whose job it is is to test people like you. And then you need to take a road test. And he said, there, there's three possibilities. One is mm-hmm. they say, oh, this woman should never drive again. And you have your license taken away forever. Two, we think she can drive again, but she may need some more instruction and then we'll retest. Three, she's good to go. So he says, I think based on how I interacted with you and what I see of you, I think you're probably going to pass. He said, but do not take the test at the hospital closest to you. That woman fails everyone. That's Northridge Hospital. He said, you need to go to Cedars in Los Angeles. He says, you'll have a fighting chance there. Good tip. So I went there and my biggest concern, Kathy, was that they would want me to parallel park. Mm. I had failed as a, as a teen when I was first getting my driver's license. I had failed the, par- the test twice on the parallel park. But the third time I had, I had passed. So I was like, please, dear God, don't make them ask, ask me to parallel park. They didn't. Anyway, so I went into the Scott drove me to Cedars. And I went and sat at a computer with this woman. And she, um, I don't remember what the test consisted of. It was probably reaction time stuff and some kind of program. Yep. Yeah. So I, I did okay. And then um, after it was over, she said, take me back to my office. I hadn't paid attention to where her office was and how we got into the computer. So I didn't know how to get her back to her office. So then she had to lead the way. And then we sat back down in her office and she made jokes about how she said, I don't road test the brain injured anymore. 
It was a good thing, too. It was like going on Mr. Toad's wild ride. Ah, she's laughing. And I'm like, look how funny I think that is. This is not funny to me. I am one of the brain injured and you're making fun of us. That's not nice. I agree. So I you know? And then she wrote on her report, has trouble pathfinding. Because I couldn't find my way back to her office because I didn't know I was going to be tested. So I hadn't paid attention. So I had passed the computer test on, you know, on her computer, but in her assessment, I had trouble pathfinding. So she noted that. And I'm like, okay, great. And then maybe a week or so later, a man showed up at my house and he said, I'm Paul Cooper. I'm going to test you, do your road test. I'm going to get, get in the mm -hmm. car with you and ask you to drive me around town. And he was, a, he looked like a nice person. And so I immediately relaxed. Um, and so then I drove him around Sherman Oaks. And then I drove him out to Toluca Lake past Bob Hope's house. I'd been to Bob Hope's house and he was of the generation that would know who Bob Hope was, you know? And mm -hmm. so I said, that's Bob Hope's house. I've been there. And I described it for him. And then he said, do you feel comfortable getting on the freeway? I said, sure. So I got us on the freeway and I drove back to our house. And he and I, I pulled up, we got out. He says, based on this, I see no reason why you shouldn't return to driving right away. He shook my hand and I was like, he didn't ask me to parallel park. I was so relieved. Wonderful. Yeah. Do you like parallel parking? Um, I'm actually okay at it. And I actually, so I had to do the same thing that you did. The computer, well, it wasn't a computer, but it was in Florida. It was uh, like a person asking you all these different tests. Um, so the first time I did not pass, second time I did, and then had to do the on the road. And they didn't, actually, they didn't uh, ask me to parallel park either. But just last week, I parallel parked and did not too bad. Good for you. So I was, thank you. I was pretty excited. But my children know, like, when mommy is driving, yeah. like, I try to give them a little leeway because I'm trying to build up that cognitive endurance. Yeah, ability to multitask. And yes. Of multitasking, et cetera. But, the, but even yesterday, like, we were at Publix and there's a lot of pedestrians and cars coming in and out. And I was like, okay, girls, I need you to, like, yeah. zip it. Like, I have I have to focus right now. I have to be safe. Um but yeah, the driving thing is not easy and shame on that instructor for making fun of her brain injury I know. clients. Yeah. Has there been anything specific that has helped you recover from your birth trauma? Other than the support of my family and friends, mm -hmm. what helped me was I returned to therapy with a therapist who I'd seen be prior to prior to the illness. I had seen her after my third miscarriage because I was dealing with intense grief from pregnancy loss and I found no one understood. Not yeah. a single fault. You you confide in people and they say things like, Well, if you're this sad about a pregnancy loss this early, what are you saying about my abortions? And I'm like, there's no comparison between mm -hmm. a wanted pregnancy loss that's lost and a pregnancy you aborted because you weren't ready to become a mother. There simply isn't. And I understand I'm empathetic, I'm pro-choice. But please don't make that. So I was so isolated in my grief that I had seen a therapist to help me deal with that grief. Mm -hmm. um, and then after I was in cognitive rehab and I my cognitive therapist asked me to go to do yoga with her. And I walked into the yoga studio and it turned out it was the same studio I had done prenatal yoga in. 
Wow. And I've been such a blissfully happy pregnant woman doing prenatal yoga. Now here I am in the same space and I know everything that's going to happen to me. I'm going to die. I nearly die and miss out on my daughter's life. And so I'm crying on my yoga mat. I'm, 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 so, I'm silently sobbing. And my cognitive therapist is across the room having yoga bliss. And I'm, I'm isolated on my mat sobbing. And so that, that made me aware that I have a lot of PTSD and unprocessed un grief, and I need to return to therapy. Mm -hmm. So I returned to therapy with the therapist I'd seen prior to pregnancy. And even though I'm no longer seeing her now, I, I recently stopped seeing her because I was talking to her over the phone once a week. But uh, I found talking because she, she doesn't want to see people since the pandemic hit, even though we're, I'm fully vaccinated, boosted and would wear a mask. So I just stopped. Um, but she helped me so much because mm. she had suffered her own miscarriages and she'd suffered her own issues around pregnancy. And so when I began seeing her again, she was like, rah, 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 you could do this, Lisa. And then she would point to my recovery. She said, Lisa, I can see the recovery you've, you've made because she saw me like seven months after the stroke. And then she saw me once a week for a couple of years in person until the pandemic hit. Well, it was a bunch of years. And so she could physically see, see it. And she said, I see the recovery you've made, even though you can't. And you're, you've come off such a long way. Wow. That, that helped me so much. No, oh, I'm so glad. I know, I know grief and PTSD are not linear. And I am only three years out and it comes up at different times. And I think three years, three years. Oh, my. For me, I'm going to be honest with you. It was close to more like 10 years before I stopped having PTSD around the date of my daughter's birth. Wow. But that was in part because my mother-in-law, because of the pandemic, she stopped being able to come visit. Hmm. She's a she's a lovely person, but she inadvertently would trigger PTSD, like by gushing about how much fun she had caring for my beautiful, tiny infant, you know. It's a little insensitive. It's a lot insensitive. So thankfully, because she couldn't come out anymore, that really helped. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to minimize the oh insensitivity. No, you didn't. Yeah. Not at all. But when she would come out every birthday of my daughter to celebrate. And that was like PTSD anniversary. It's the height of our PTSD is the birthday. Mm -hmm. And so then to have someone coming out who's like gushing about how much fun they had caring for your baby, it's like... I. You're just adding, you're pouring acid on my wounds. Please don't. Yes. So when she couldn't come out anymore on the birthday, it was like, oh, ah, oh, it's a relief. And also the time had passed enough that it was no longer trauma traumatizing for me. So I I'm now happy. thank you. We just went to Disneyland to celebrate my daughter's birthday. Her birthday was March 5th, and my mm -hmm. birthday is March 12th. So we have one week apart. Um and recently, because of some issue, we we had to celebrate her, her birthday a little later. So we just mm -hmm. went to Disneyland all weekend long. And when you talk about, um, oh, what is it, stamina, I mean, because for me, the stroke yes. makes yes. me have to work a lot harder, you know, to focus, to remember. And so I could get a little more fatigued, you know. Yes, absolutely. I just spent two days, two full days from park open to park close with two very excited girls running around Disneyland. I well done. Yes, thank you. And I didn't get lost and I didn't get cranky and I didn't get sunburned. So I think it's a win. Mm -hmm.
Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in today. We kindly ask you to head over to your favorite podcasting platform to leave us a review. It really helps with searchability and finding different podcasts. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, and you've been listening to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding light after perinatal trauma. Bye-bye.